to the weekly message from Angel of Joy Lutheran Church, an ELCA congregation located in Lufkin, Texas. Pastor Paul Guy and the family of Angel of Joy invite you to join us for worship at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. If you should find yourself in our neighborhood, please enjoy this message and visit our website at angelofjoy.org. Dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a familiar story or parable that we heard today, one that has been preached on a lot of different times. And hopefully each time each of us has has learned something new or at least been able to relate to it in a fresh way. One of my favorite movies, one of the romance ones, was A Walk in the Clouds. Some of you have seen that about a a young woman who met a fellow on a bus. She was going home to her family in in the Napa region of California, great vineyard area, and her her family owned a big vineyard up there. And the story, a love story, played out there. I won't go into that, but it, it struck me that that vineyard was so expansive. I mean, from time to time in the movie, you could see for miles in every direction hills covered with the, the grapevines. Theologically speaking, the vineyards of the Lord spread out far and wide. But there comes a time when the harvest needs to be made. That's where we come in. But let's start at the beginning. Jesus told this parable in response to Peter's question, which we didn't hear today, where Peter said, Look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? See, Peter was pointing out to Jesus all that he and those other 11 disciples had given up in order to be his followers. It reminded me of another movie I saw, and I'll bet you pretty much everyone here has seen it too, called Field of Dreams. Is there anyone who has not seen Field of Dreams? A baseball story. Okay, there are a few of you. It's a wonderful story about... A place in Iowa where a farmer encountered a voice. And in response to the voice, he plowed under a lot of his field, his cornfield, and built a baseball diamond. See, the message was, if you build it, he will come. Well, he did that, and people made fun of him, and his brother-in-law tried to tell him that if you don't replant that field... The bank's going to foreclose on you. And in the end, he was adamant that he was going to leave that baseball field. And one day, he noticed a baseball player out there in an old-time uniform. And it was Shoeless Joe Jackson, who back in 1919 had been banned by baseball for having bet on the World Series. Acknowledged as one of the greatest players, he was someone who missed the game so much. And there was the field. And over the course of the movie, a number of other 
old ball players or their ghosts came back to play on that field too. Well, there was another fellow too, a baseball writer, a writer, a well-known writer, played by the incomparable James Earl Jones. And somehow the protagonist, Kevin Costner's character, Ray Kinsella, got that writer to come back with him to his home in Iowa to see the field. Well, there was a point where at the end of the day, the players would all go off into the cornfield. The stalks of corn were there, and they'd disappear in the rows of the corn. You couldn't see them anymore. We can only presume they went back to heaven or at least someplace where the dead abide. Well, ultimately, there was a confrontation because Shoeless Joe invited that writer, Terry, to come with the team into the cornfield and see what lay out there and then to write about it. Well, Ray was really upset. This is the farmer who owned the field, who had plowed under and risked his livelihood, in fact, the mortgage to his farm, by building that field. And he was really upset that Terry and not he was invited to go with the players into that hidden place. And a dialogue took place. He said, wait a minute, I built this field. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for me. I want to know what's out there. I want to see it. And Shoeless Joe said, but you're not invited. And Ray said, what do you mean I'm not invited? That's my corn out there. I've done everything I was asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done it, and I haven't once asked what's in it for me. And Joe said, what are you saying, Ray? Ray said, I'm saying, what's in it for me? To which Joe responded, is that why you did this? For you? Sounds sort of like Peter, doesn't it? What's in it for me? And who did you do it for? Well, indeed, the disciples had given up their homes, their families, their jobs, their security. They didn't know what the next week was going to, to bring, much less a year or two down the road. Peter had given his whole life up for Jesus, and now he wondered aloud what he was going to receive in return. And in response, Jesus told him this parable, the one that we just heard. Peter would receive salvation, he would receive eternal life, a place in the eternal kingdom of heaven, and, Jesus says, so will everybody else. Well, it's one thing to think about Peter, this little vignette between Jesus and his number one disciple, sort of an educational experience. But another one, we take it onto our own lives, our own shoulders. How does it make you feel when Jesus says that every Christian, no matter how much they've given to Jesus in their lifetime, no matter how faithful they've been in church, how much they've put in the offering plate, how much they've, how much time they've given in preparing for the Oktoberfest or, or volunteering to be Sunday school teachers? Many do. Far more don't. How would you feel? 
How does it make you feel to hear that some who have wasted their lives and maybe not even until the very last hour of their lifetime confessed Jesus as Lord and yet they receive the same thing that you do? How does that make you feel? I've been a Christian all my life. I've been faithful. I've, I went to seminary or I, I became a, I've been in the nursery for 40 years. And that person just came through the door last week. They were received as a child of God, and they just got hit and killed by a drunk driver. Which of us gets the better treatment once they get to heaven? It doesn't seem right, does it, that, that the last comers get just as much as the first comers? And if we're honest, we really can't help but sympathize with those workmen in the parable who went into the field first. I mean, they they definitely agreed it was above board, it was fair, the wages that were agreed upon. I wonder how they would have reacted if they had known what was going to transpire later in the day. But this parable really has nothing to do with fair labor laws. It's not a prescription of how employers should treat their employees. It is a description of how God works in the kingdom of heaven. And the bottom line, this parable is a reminder of who's in charge here. It really is. God's goodness at times is totally incomprehensible to us. We simply can't fully comprehend it. We're so concerned with making everything fair that we can't understand unfair generosity. And in the end, we have to realize that we aren't the ones who worked all day. No, we're really not. Not even those of you that have put in decade after decade going to church, faithfully supporting the ministry of the church, saying your prayers not only before meals, but... Maybe at the beginning and the close of the day. No, it's not about you. The thing is, it was Jesus who did it all. He's the one who bore the burden of the day and who sweated in the scorching heat. Only Jesus earned salvation. Yet God calls us to himself. And you know what? He gives us the full wage. There's not one of us here who has died for anybody else. At least I'm pretty sure about that. No one here died for another's sins to pay that penalty. Only Jesus. At the same time, God gives you and me the unconditional love and promise of salvation, not because you've worked hard enough, but because... Jesus did it all for you and me. God gives us, when all is said and done, all is counted and put away, he gives us far more than we ever could earn in this lifetime or a hundred more after it. The wages of sin is death, but God gives us, you and me, life. But at the same time, God continues to say, I need you. I love you, but I need you. We're partners in this. God chose and claimed us in our baptism. He renews us at the table, with the sacrament of the table. 
He sends us out as laborers to plant and harvest, to speak to those who have never heard, or once again to those who perhaps heard once and forgot. The good news is that God still chooses to need us and use us. He does. And even if society struggles to define righteousness, who deserves to be respected and paid, you and I have been set free by God to be accepting of anyone who seeks to be a part of God's family. We never, and this is you and me, we don't ever need to decide who's good enough. That's not our job, it's not our responsibility, it's not our burden. We don't need to decide who's good enough or who has done enough. You and I are free to let God be God. And looking once more at Jesus' parable, when you are giving thanks for your own blessings, instead of complaining to God about what others get, God's generosity and indiscriminate love still may not look fair. But as I said... It's not our problem. That was Jesus' problem. And you know how he dealt with it. Remember, bottom line, God is in charge here. And we can only discover our greatest blessing by accepting that with our whole heart. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please provide feedback on the iTunes podcast page and visit our website at angeljoy.org for more information.